0: Vapor Network is the bomb The cutting edge of geekdom Comics, advice, D&D Movies, video games, RPGs Finding it's easy Just stay episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. This is David M. Ewald, author of, of Dice and Men, and you're listening to The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And in this episode, number 257, I'm headed off into a world where magic and science war with each other and have left us as heroes, as we look at lessons from Titan's grave that can improve your D&D campaign. You may have noticed that Tracy hasn't chimed in here. That's because Tracy has ended up getting sick today, and we've been trying to schedule this episode for so long that she she said we should you know just go ahead and go on without her. So I've gathered up together an intrepid band of adventurers with the blood of ancient heroes to help start start to fill the gap that Tracy leaves in her wake. First up is a newcomer to the show, but a guest over at the Appendix Inn podcast. Be sure to check out that great show that looks at classic stories that are D&D inspired over at thetomeshow.com. Lewis Britton. Hello, Next up are longtime friends of the show, although I don't know that they've ever been on together before. Jeremiah McCoy and David Gibson.
1: Hi, Leho, there.
0: Hello, all. It is good to have all of you gentlemen here. Thank you for coming on. So, the idea behind this episode is that Titans Grave is great. The game book, the web show with Will Wheaton, all around—it's it's lots of goodness. So, while it is designed for the Fantasy Age system, which, by the way, is a pretty great system and totally worth checking out, what if I wanted to take lessons from Titan's Grave and apply it to my D&D game? That's what we're exploring today. First up, because I know he's fantastic at recapping things, Jeremiah, what is Titan's Grave?
1: Well, Titan's Grave is the... uh, uh, fantasy setting that uh, Will Wheaton came up with for his uh, role-playing show on the Geek and Sundry Network. Uh, set in a alien world that had been affected uh, in the distant past and brought various different races. And it combines technology and magic uh, in a sort of almost post-apocalyptic style world.
0: Alright. Cool, yeah. So it was a web show and then... Um... They worked with Green Ronin, the, the publishing company also responsible for bringing us um, the Out of the Abyss adventure for, uh, that was published by Watsi and the um, Sword Coast Adventures Guide published by Watsi. Uh, so you're familiar with their work if you're keeping up with what's going on in D&D. Um, they that took this world and created a crafted sort of a story and an adventure with it that then Will ran on the show uh, and then they published it as an adventure as well so you can enjoy the the story in two ways right you can you can play the game um or you can go watch the the show on geek and sundry and you get similar sort of experiences and stories yes yeah did i miss any like did did jeremiah and i miss any uh key ideas no No? i'd say you pretty
2: much covered it um i think it's a uh it's a nice merging of the two genres, which is something I enjoy when you see two genres mixed together like that. I like seeing science fantasy done well, and uh, I thought they did a good job with this.
0: Yeah, and it's worth noting that our goal today is not to review the Titans, Grave, Ashes of Volcano story, the web show, the book, or whatever. But we're going to take inspiration from these things in order to talk about... How do we make our games better? And I think the, the idea is to come up with some advice that's pretty universal, regardless of what game or game system you're playing. I think there are some things that you can get out of it that, um, that can apply to you, right, and, and to help you tell better stories and what have you. Does that seem fair? Absolutely. All right. Spoiler alert. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Sorry for spoilers. Spoiler alert. So the story starts with relatively small. You've got your band of adventurers. They're saving, you know, a, a caravan and, and they're stopping monsters from destroying things. And it slowly sort of ramps up and ramps up and ramps up to the point that they are confronting the big, bad, great evil that one time tried to conquer the world sort of thing. Right. Um, so it goes in, in some pretty crazy directions. Uh, and it, and there's a lot of things, of course, that happen in between. Um but what can we learn from this that helps us make our games better? Who's got a lesson that they, that they learned? Um, I'll go first.
2: Oh, no, i sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, no, go ahead.
2: Well, um, I, I will say something that really impressed me just from watching the show itself and then it was reinforced in the book is Will going out of his way before they started the adventure to privately speak to each individual player and talk about kind of hidden background details and personal points of contact with the story and in some cases even things that things that or ways that the players were involved with each other's stories. Uh, I thought they did a really good job with that and I immediately my brain turned on and I started vacuuming that up immediately when I saw him doing that.
0: Yeah, the, the, the question piece, right? And I wasn't sure watching the show how much of that was the adventure and how much of that was just Will's DMing style. Um, and I was really impressed when I picked up the game book and realized how much of that was actually hard baked into the, to the adventure. Like those questions that he was asking, it wasn't just let me get some random general background information. It was targeted questions that were intended to come up later at, at planned points in the story. Right, so so it wasn't just ask some questions and get some background information about your players, but it was ask some very pointed questions that are going to become important.
1: I, I think that the other lesson that can be taken from that same section is that you know uh, personal trumps epic a lot of the times. So mm-hmm. If you can if you can make a story personal to the individual characters and what that that player. St- sees the story of that character. Uh it makes whatever epic thing you're going to do that much more affecting, you know? People will feel it more and and that is sort of the whole point.
0: Yeah, yeah, actually that's a that's a whole different um or or I guess related lesson I think, right? If anything, I felt like the personal made the epic work, right? It wasn't just let's go big and bad and you're going to save the world. It's let's go big and bad and you're, and you're going to save the world and it's going to mean something to you because it's personal, right? Yeah, yeah very
2: much so. Very much so. I thought uh, I thought that was an excellent bit of storytelling. But to be able to do that, something I've been thinking about in preparation for this conversation is the fact that the game master has to be willing to give away some of the story to the mm-hmm. players. Mm-hmm. I'm
3: about that.
0: See- oh, go ahead, David.
3: You definitely see that with how Will Whedon asks leading questions they mm-hmm. walk into a store and says, "One of you sees something you want, and it kind of gives away that part of the story, mm-hmm. which feels a little railroady because you're you're um giving the players something they have to choose they, have, they one of them wants something, and that agency is lost, but they can choose how much uh they want and how valuable it is it could be again well, in the in the story it's a very valuable scare but could it could just have easily been I really want a drink of water. Or mm-hmm. and, and they, to get, to choo- they get
0: to choose what it is. They get to choose yeah. which one of them that wants it, right? So, so there's still a lot of agency there, right? Yeah, and I,
3: I like that. I really like that. I was really impressed with yeah. that. And asking the questions and giving them that little bit of surrendering and agency, mm-hmm. tying them into the worlds.
2: Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's a, it marks an important character trait of a good game master, which is an inherent unselfishness. If I insist on telling my story,
0: moments like that don't happen. So we've been talking, I think, fairly broadly about some of these ideas, um, about making the PC sort of an integral and personal part of the story, um, using questions and and giving players some ownership and, and advocacy for the, the setting and where some things go, Um I'm kind of curious if we can dig in and get a little bit more specific about that, right? How, how does that happen in the story of Titan's grave? So let's somebody give me an example of, of like the kinds of questions that he asked to, to get some background information that would be useful later.
1: Uh, he asked some really uh, leading questions and they put some of them in the, uh, the actual book. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one example was one of you has an unusual relationship with or connection to the history of the chaos war which of you is it what is the relationship and how does it impact your life I mean it's a very leading question mm-hmm. it, it embeds them already in the world and the, the back story but it also allows them to sort of build their own cool back mm-hmm.
0: yeah and 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 it's building backstory, but it's also it's also leading into the the story that they're telling. Right? They yeah. want you to think about these themes, and sometimes it's very concrete. Sometimes it's you know, um, one of you is wanted for a crime. You know, uh, what did you do? That's that's so horrible that that you're, you know, trying to keep under the radar, and then that ends up co- being connected to well, the crime what happened to be involve this specific company and this specific company is actually involved in the story. And, and they use that as leverage against you. Or one of you has an animosity against somebody or somebody, you know, who you hate or a rival or whatever. And then that rival shows up as a character and will just sort of makes that work.
1: You know, I think the, the one question that actually uh, struck me as a provocative choice was the one where they were saying, you one of you knows a secret about one of the other uh, player characters Mm. you know which which of you is it and what do you know Mm -hmm. uh, and about who so you're basically asking the players to define things about somebody else's character Mm -hmm. and that you know the wrong part wrong group of players that might actually backfire on you but the right group of players it it makes for you know awesome investment Mm
0: mm-hmm yeah, so so let's talk about that. How how could you do that successfully in in your group y- even if you're not quite sure if you've got the right group of players?
2: I think the first step is firing some warning shots at the beginning of the campaign mm-hmm. that this kind of thing is going to happen. You know. Um mm-hmm. I don't think you'd want to pop that on six strangers meeting you for Adventures League for the first time ever and and, you know, you're just not going to do that kind of thing. You've got to, I think that kind of has to be in the, the groundwork of the game is, hey, I'm going to be giving some of the story away. And I'm going to let you guys drive some things maybe in a way you're not used to. And I'm even going to allow some of the other characters' choices to impact your character in more personal ways. I think it's really important to put that out
0: there on the front end. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. On one hand, yes. On the other hand, sometimes when you've got a bunch of new players, that's the perfect time to just spring something like this on them because then it doesn't become – if you don't frame it as this is something new new and different or unusual that I'm doing but it's just sort of this is the standard operating procedure, sometimes they're a little bit more willing to just accept it and go along with it. Hmm. Um, I've recently had that experience because I also – as a teacher, I also happen to be, of course, the teacher who sponsors the uh, after-school tabletop gaming club. That meets every Friday uh, and plays games with 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds for an hour every week. Uh, and we just started a fantasy age game with one of the tables there. And I just sort of started asking these exact sort of questions um, with with those players. And they'd never played a game – like, not only had they never played like fantasy age or a game like this before, they have never played a tabletop role-playing game before. This is their very first time experience with it. So so far as they know, those kinds of questions and story building are just a part of the game.
2: Now, that's an interesting insight. When, it, when they are truly brand new, mm-hmm. sure, they can think that's par for the course. Yeah,
0: yeah. Although, although I'd also have to be a little bit careful because um, two of them had sort of built – ended up building the story that they are brothers. And, and one of them is or feels responsible for the death of their father. Right, and so one of the two started going crazy, with with all these things about oh yeah you killed him and it was this and it was that and whatever, um, and, and going probably too far. And as a DM or, or GM, I guess in t- in the case of Fantasy Age, um, I just sort of recognized okay this person's going too far, and I cut him off and say yeah but it's, it's actually his turn to, to fill in part of the story now not yours so it's his spotlight you get to be quiet now so none of what you said is actually what happened you know so, so I just sort of guide away from the craziness when or when things are going in the direction where both of the people involved aren't comfortable uh, you could also very explicitly say you know if it involves another person they get veto power so if they don't like what, where it's going they can just say no um, I think those would, would all be sort of um, functional ways of handling yes. that
3: as Tracy's fond of bringing up, and since she's not here, someone else should. It's good to have the kind of the, 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 the veto card, the, the, mm-hmm. the something you tap in the middle of the table when you think it's going too far, or pushing the wrong buttons that's making you uncomfortable. And you could definitely do that as well for when they're, you're veering too much into a story direction that really someone doesn't want. Mm-hmm. If you're enforcing some agency on another character.
0: Yeah, and sometimes it's not an issue of, of what's making them uncomfortable, sometimes yeah. it's just a, I I don't want my, my character's story to go that direction. You know and I think that's that's fair too if it's if it's your character you you should have some veto control over yeah. that but at Works the same so well. time if you're in a situation like that as a player um, be open to that right that's that's kind of part of the fun especially early in a campaign um, you know I, I I'm trying to do some of the similar sort of things with a campaign I'm getting ready to start soon and I'm starting to ask some of these questions of the players and and they're filling in some gaps and what have you um, and that's being done very, very carefully and intentionally, um, but when you do it that early, um, there's some willingness of the players to say, you know what, this character's not fully formed yet anyway. If, if there's a time for somebody else to suggest something creative that, that's true about my character, now's the time to do it, right? In a month, I've, this character will be something in my head and I'll know who they are. But right now, I'm still rolling dice. Who knows what, what this character could be? Right.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, one thing that is maybe a cheat but uh, I think probably would help to sort of prime people for it is before you run this game try doing one of the more indie story type games so people get used to that sort of back and forth uh, narrative game structure just so they can see what it works like in mm-hmm. another context and then you 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 pull pull them into that on this game on on your D&D game or or your titans uh um titan uh yeah titans grave <laughs> sorry um but uh, you pull it in and, and then they have a context of okay this is how that works
0: mhm yeah and i think that's that's a good idea um and your mileage may vary right i i've tried some of that with my group and i have half of my group that was totally into it and half of my group that's like, yeah, this story game thing is not for me. And and you can probably identify them because you've played in that in my group, McCoy, so. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, when are we going to kill stuff?
0: Yeah. yeah. Yep, that's what it comes down to sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, it, but Everybody was willing to try it out at least once. So, so when we do something like this and I take the rules away and it's just sort of let me ask some questions and we'll build a story before we start the game, um, then they're at least used to that type of conversation, you know? Sure. So I think there's still some value there with you. what you said. Yeah. You know, p- play a little fiasco or something um, and, and get them a different experience.
3: Or even just leading into it in an existing campaign, and just giving them a, a little agency, mm-hmm. like uh, Will Whedon has them name a beer in his, the Titan's grave. That's something you could throw into any campaign. It's yeah, just, and, you're and drinking it, somewhere. What's the in calls? Yeah, and just get them I, get used to that. And, then and the actually, next campaign.
0: I really love that part. Right, that 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 bit where as a as a DM, you're always like you you know the, you you walked up to this guy in the, on the street and you asked him these questions and you suddenly asked me what their name is and I'm like I don't know <laughs> turning that around and having the players be on top of that or in charge of that that I thought that was a brilliant thing like I loved the way Will Wheaton did that whether it was the beer or you go into into the shop and um you see something you got to have or whatever like this is becoming my new modus operandi as a as a person who runs games right this is what i'm striving for is you walk up to that stranger on the street and you want to know what they look like great you tell me what do they look like you you build this world you take some ownership of that you know okay. and yeah, he ran think-
3: with it even though it was a, a silly name for a beer he didn't like you know that's a silly name for a beer he's like yeah no it's it's the grandmother's sweat yeah, it's sure gran- grandma's sweat. It's completely <laughs> straight absolutely yeah.
2: Yeah, Sorry, I, think a, uh, I think that's a. I think that's a. I think he did that fantastically. I think it's a very useful tool. I think it's a. Uh, it's also something that our friend Mike Shea would approve of because mm-hmm. it smacks of lazy dungeon mastering Absolutely. in that sense. Because you're having the game, the, the other players co-tell the story with you on a whole new level.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Also, I I think it, uh it also helps that while he is doing this, he also has a, a, a strong idea of what his themes are for the campaign. mm mm-hmm. um, it, it, it can get really confusing if you just, like, everybody starts tossing everything into a pot and no one has a, a, a through line to help sort of pull it out.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: having a, a, a strong, you know, okay, here's the, the, the touchstone that we're going to keep coming back to helps. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I mean I'm I'm trying to like I said I'm trying to practice some of this in this upcoming campaign that I've got to the point that it was um, you know I have some some ideas about themes like you talked about and I know some of the the larger sort of strokes of the kind of stories that are going to be going on in this world um, but when it came time to actually fill in the details I don't know like I'm like okay well, there will be some sort of evil empire like this thing or whatever. But I didn't place it on the map. I threw a map in front of them and said, hey, where are you starting? You're part of this this thing called the Free Realms. Where are they? You, you put them on the map. Okay, cool. We're going to do an island adventure because you picked this chain of islands. That's a whole different feel than if you had picked over here in the desert or whatever. right? But I gave them that ownership and, and they're sort of f- helping me fill in the gaps of, of even the setting, let alone the story, uh, as we go. And I got all of that inspiration from from uh, watching and reading Titan's Grave because he lets them uh, in little ways that don't affect the larger themes, right? The the larger theme of Titan's Grave is not affected by by all these little decisions. You know, the larger themes of my story, it doesn't matter where in the world you are, right? Cool, we're going to do boats instead of horses. That's, that's what changed, but that doesn't change the story. Uh, and so I, I'm really enjoying sort of playing with that.
2: Yeah, I think it really ramps up what we've always been trying... Well, most of us have always been trying to do with role-playing games is truly collaborative storytelling mm-hmm. rather than the relationship being something like I'm the director and you're the actors. Mm-hmm. You know, much more of a truly collaborative, we're going to weave this tale together.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. That, that That's something that people have been aiming for for a long time. And I think in a lot of ways... Um, we we were maybe just lacking an example, you know. I'd never seen a game run and, and built in that sort of way before.
2: Oh, absolutely! I've been playing since 1983 or 1984, but this experience of watching the show and reading the book ha- has improved me by a certain percentage as a as a game master, in my opinion. Mm-hmm.
0: Any other conversations about, about filling in those setting details, giving up that ownership and letting the players have some, or the questions, or any of that, right? I had some other things I want to talk about, but I want to make sure we've wrapped up that, that conversation.
3: Well, it's a bit of a tangent, kind of, yeah.
0: but, but what I liked was how he had
3: the actions become legends. So it isn't just showing the characters' past and how they affect the story, but also how they're, they affect the future, So it's not just this might, your actions might have an effect, Mm. but actually selling them that years from now, the tales of how you did this spread Mm -hmm. uh, from the the three sixes or, you know, a really good critical hit. That's a great way of influencing the setting, making the characters and the players feel like they've had an impact and have some influence on the worlds. Through their yeah. actions, just
0: it's, it's luck. So that happened whenever there was what was it triple sixes, or was it yeah, just yes. any any triple roll? Triple sixes. Triple so anytime you roll triple sixes, it was this legendary thing. It only happened like what two times over the course of the entire campaign.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah,
2: and so not always at epic moments. Like one with <laughs> fix a robot. You yeah, know, something like that. But yeah yeah uh, so i think I think that speaks to what we end up doing in our gaming cultures anyway with the meta we have because man don't we all have a head full of qu- quotes of something really funny somebody said at the game table mm-hmm. or hey man you remember that one time when you did that you know he's kind of taken that and actually velcroing it into the storyline itself
0: and why mm-hmm. not you know absolutely so how would we take that and make it part of our d and d game like I obviously we can say you did something really well um and and tell a story, right, you know, what, what, how are how are people remembering this in the future and all that. But, but you wouldn't want to do it with every crit, right? They did it twice over the course of the entire story. I think um, they were,
1: it's a little more than twice, but yeah. Uh,
0: but in any case, it was, it was fairly rare. Right. Um, so how do you, how do you do that in a D&D game? You'd have to have, have a second role. It worked really well
3: in. Third edition, a little bit, we had the confirmation roll for critical right. hits. So if you rolled and then confirmed with a 20, right. I've, you I've you seen some mouse rolls, yeah, you double quitted. That would be one way. You could easily add that to a fifth edition game. We're just having a you throw another 20 after the fact, and mm-hmm. if that's a 20, it just becomes a legendary moment, even though it has no mechanical effect, mm-hmm. which also doesn't slow down play because the person just rolls afterwards, where it's in, you narrate it. But. Yeah. It's a little bit more involved in that there's that actual mechanical step. Right, it's and you're, of, and you're
0: yeah, rolling yeah, an extra die that, that yeah. you know, what, 95% of the time doesn't do anything and has no purpose? Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not the most elegant way of doing it, but it's, that's, I mean, I had the same thought. Like, third edition, that would have been easy, right? Because you have the confirmation die.
1: Well, um, I, I, in fifth, you've got uh, advantage. Just, if you roll a double crit on an advantage roll. I like that. That could work. Yeah, you don't get advantage on every roll, so it's... Yeah, that's fairly rare. It's fairly rare, and and when you get it and get a double crit, that would keep it from being a thing that happens every session, but Mm -hmm. it would happen every once in a while.
0: Yeah, it might. I don't know. I'm trying to think. In in the time that I've played 5th edition and used the advantage mechanic, I don't know that I can think of any time that that's happened. (laughs) I I have seen it. It has happened. Yeah. I'm sure, uh, I've I mean,
2: seen I've seen the dreaded double ones, but I have not seen the double twenties. Yeah,
3: Ooh, double ones might also be like the the legendary fail. <laughs>
0: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I I have to think on this a little bit more because I feel like there's got to be something in between. Like uh, every time your crit is too much. But having to double crit on an advantage uh roll seems like it would almost never happen. So I I feel like there's something in between and I just gotta sort and the, the crit confirm sort of idea is not a horrible one. Um, I don't know, I just have to I've I have to mold this around. I'm not sure that I I've fully baked an idea here. So
1: I, I think that the um the more important lesson on, on a mechanic uh, is is not necessarily a mechanical mm-hmm. one, but uh, he sold it. Like yeah. whenever it was the 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 moment to have the cool moment, he sold it completely. Uh, you know, it, it, big sweeping descriptions of how awesome it was, and you know, and, 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 you know the 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 way that you know the character would spin into a yeah, you know, dance or what have you, and doing that even on the the stuff that isn't the super legendary stuff, he would occasionally just like here's a here's a really cool description of what happened. Uh, that you know, makes for a more exciting table.
0: Well, and and he does it in a in a really smart way, I think, um, because he also integrates some of that p- player ownership pieces of it, but it's a little bit less of a. Hey, you did this thing that's really cool. Tell us what it is, right? Which I've used that that thing before, right? Hey, you critted, or you killed the monster, or you did, you know, you did this thing really well, or whatever. You you describe it to me because not every player is in a position where they want to get into that so much. Um, but he does a really nice job of he sets that stage, and then you can still throw in your agency and explain some things without having to be the one going big and, and bombastic, right? The DM can go big and bombastic, and then you just have to throw in some of the details for the DM to continue weaving the story. Sure. So I thought that was really smart.
1: Yeah. Um, I, 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 I think that uh, the thing that actually, you know, on a side note, that that actually got me excited about Titan's Grave when they first started talking about it is the first thing he mentioned was, I used to watch this cartoon called Thundar the Barbarian. (laughs) And I was on the same page with him at that moment. The moment he said Thundar the Barbarian, I was like, all right, I'm in. (laughs) See,
0: but to me it it was, in many ways, it was Thundar the Barbarian, but let's take it seriously. Whereas I never think of Thundar and actually think of it very seriously personally. (laughs) <laughs> you, you mean you mean Thundar didn't change your life? <laughs> Oddly enough, well, first of all, I, I may be a, a little young for Thundar um, I remember seeing it in reruns, but it was never really my thing I'm just sort of vaguely familiar with its existence So no, it definitely didn't change my life
2: yeah. Oh yeah, I watched it when I was a kid, I thought it was cool
0: Well, I, But I also have a, a, a perception of Thundar that's kind of Gamma Worldish, right? Yeah, it has its serious moments, but it's also not exactly taking itself seriously.
1: I I think that uh, the one of the things I did like about Titans Grave is they do catch that sort of that sort of mix of fantasy and science fiction mm-hmm. that very much matches the, the the flavor of Thunder of the Barbarian. Oh, you know, yeah. There's there's sorcerers running around in the same you know arena, as it were, as people with you know, laser swords and, and blaster rifles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they don't overcomplicate the rules of it or, very much. they just like, you know, yeah, he's got a blaster. It does about as much damage as a crossbow. Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and, and they, they, they didn't go so far in depth that it became bogged down in it. Um, yeah, and they, they, they
0: didn't let it become, like, clearly there was a lot of time and attention paid into creating a serious world. And yeah. at the same time, when it came to the details, they clearly took an attitude of, you know what? Don't sweat it. It just works. You know, a blaster and a crossbow do the same damage. Shut up. Just go forward because it's cool. You know? <laughs> so.
3: <laughs> yeah. It really does show that you can add laser guns to your campaign and not break the world. <laughs>
0: yep.
3: I don't know much about Thundar, but I watched a lot of He-Man as a kid. And same thing. Oh, so yeah. You can have the blasters
1: and you can have the guy in the sword
3: and the loincloth. And it works just fine.
1: Just remember, uh, Thundar had Jack Kirby doing a lot of the character designs. For better or worse.
0: <laughs> so, uh, and that actually leads into, into something else I kind of wanted to talk about. And we've kind of just hopped around with some things um, that I wanted to talk about anyway. Um, but, well, it, it, it is basically taking a, this post-apocalyptic, almost fantasy-ish uh, sci- or science fantasy story or, or world, and taking it very seriously, um, the story's not afraid to sort of lighten up, right? Um, with moments like, hey, the opening sequence is us saving and/or interacting with or getting paid by the Beer Baron, which you could hardly say is a is a serious you know epic story element. Uh, and at one point, you're stopping this horrible monster um, from drinking all of the beer, and it's gotten wasted in the in the brewery or whatever, you know? Um, this is not a story that's taking itself too seriously. But at the same time, it has really serious moments, right? Or it, 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 I would argue it's very serious, but it's not afraid to have fun, too. I,
2: yeah, I, I would... I'm sorry, go ahead, brother. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, it's it's clear. I think he's trying to very intentionally run the entire emotional gamut because when you intentionally have characters like the Beer Baron and, and Runcible, the Cyborg Teddy Bear and mm. things like that, then you're you're trying to go one way with it. But he's also very willing and fairly quick to take it really deep and really dark into the characters' souls, if you will, and explore some of their baggage and uh, some of their hurts.
0: Yeah, how much of that do you think was... Um Really, how it played out without the editing, and how much of it do you think was just edited to, to seem more dramatic because there were some like really like tense moments of, of dealing with with difficult things and whatever, and how much of that was it, was it just edited that way? do you think
3: mm. uh, having seen a couple well, well Laura Bailey in critical role mm-hmm. she is, she was really good in staying in character and not drifting off it's, uh, it's also in the same network and it's basically live streamed so right. It's, no editing, and oh, they can kind of sure. stay on point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and maybe. I would
2: say the—I'm sorry—I would say the writing is also very evocative in the book itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he 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 keeps telling you throughout the book try to find these personal hooks and connect this bit of the story to a personal hook in one of the characters. He's—I think there's a fairly high degree of emotionally evocative that he's going
0: for very intentionally. Mm-hmm. So, so and, and that's something else we've talked around but not really dove, in, dove too deep into is, is this whole make it personal concept. Um, how does the story of Titan's Grave make that story personal to those players? Because I think uh, that's something we could absolutely take into our D&D games. But, but it, it doesn't feel like something super easy to do. So how do you do that? Or how uh, do they do it?
1: Uh, he, he definitely used a lot of uh, cinematic language to a certain extent. He, mm-hmm. uh, he, he used things like flashbacks, um, dream sequences, um, just little bits to sort of here is the personal thing that you, you gave me the, the, the tools for your personal backstory, I'm going to now, you know, put it into the game in a very cinematic way. Um, and you know, I've seen it done on uh, on tabletops before. I've done it a couple of times. Uh, It takes work to get it right, Uh, but he's good at it. He's good at it. And he's good at it. And he does it a lot. And and it's
0: it's it's knocked out of the park every time he does it. And I don't know that I could pull that off. (laughs) I'd I would would get halfway through one of those monologues and be like, "Uh," and then you know, stuff happens. Whatever, you know.
2: Yeah, the, especially with the scene that he does near the end when there are...
0: Spoiler alert. Spoilers. 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 Sorry for spoilers. Spoiler alert.
2: When they're very near the end of the story and they're about to go through this warp, or they go through a warp gate and they're going to arrive at the, the tomb or the temple of the prophet and all that, and he gives them a pretty much an episode-length flashback scenario. Mm. And I think, I mean, there's a lot of him just talking in that. A lot of just monologuing, but I think he very cleverly... I think most characters had two or three decision points. They had little forks in the road that he let them Mm -hmm. choose, and then he was ready to go with it whichever way they went. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can be a helpful thing, because when when you're describing something cinematic, you're getting away from player volition, which is something else he seems to value. And so you gotta, if you're gonna do that, you gotta find ways to reel them into the cinematic description too.
0: Yeah, and part of me wonders as I as I watch part of parts of those things, uh, because like that sequence that you're talking about, as they as they teleported or went through the gate or whatever, and then had those visions or, or what have you, flashbacks, visions, whatever we're gonna call them, um, that's not in the book, right? That's something that Will did, and then they right. add, they added a sidebar in the book and said, oh yeah, here's a thing that Will did. You can do something similar if you want, like. He goes into a lot of detail and he goes on and on and he gives them decision points and he rolls with it and whatever. And I'm like, how much of that is he, is he just really good at making that stuff up off the cuff? And how much of that is um, he's done a lot of preparation?
1: I know that the episodes showed him reading during right. those sections. He did. So he had to have written at least a portion of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he
2: mentioned that he and his son had stayed up all night the night before working on that, so he must have had at least a decision tree structure in place and some keywords or descriptions in place. Mm-hmm. But
1: I'm not positive.
0: I don't know if I can dedicate that kind of time <laughs> to playing a game. <laughs>
1: well, it should be noted that it's hard to judge your own game by a game where most of the players are professional actors.
0: Oh, yeah. Well,
1: yeah. And, and they
0: they also recorded... Um, I think I, I heard, saw something or heard something from Chris Premis saying that they recorded, like, six or seven hours a day over, over like, a week and then edited it down into, what, eight 20-minute eight or 30-minute episodes or whatever? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happened that isn't on air
1: yeah it, actually if you want a, a a good example of uh of what it's like to watch a bunch of actors play D and not get it edited, edited down actually uh critical role that we were mentioned, mentioned earlier, earlier yeah uh, it's definitely it um uh, my only problem with that particular show is i can't really devote four hours to watch yeah see that's my YouTube
0: thing. that's my issue with actual play uh YouTube or, or even podcasts, um, is that what, what, what am I not doing <laughs> during the, the hours and hours and hours every week or whatever that I'm consuming that, you know?
2: Yeah, that's exactly the thing, man. I daydream about getting to watch Critical Role.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: maybe someday I'll get lucky and break both my legs and I'll have time. Yeah,
0: I, I watched their uh, their Vin Diesel thing, and that was, that was a, as much time as I could probably dedicate. Yeah,
1: I've caught a it's, couple of episodes. They're fun.
0: All right, so I think I've hit all of my bullet points. Uh, what other lessons from *Titan's Grave* do you want to talk about that, that can help us make our games better?
2: Well, I'll throw I, something in for, uh, and this is really me speaking to like *Wizards of the Coast* on this issue. But man, the the way they break up the material in the book, the way there's a very good, excellent, just two or three paragraph summary at the beginning of each chapter of, hey, here's exactly what's going to be going on here. Uh, this, and I know this is true of all gro- Green Ronin stuff that I've seen. They, they break the encounters up into combat encounters or role-playing encounters or um, what's the other one? Exploration, Exploration encounters. Which, according to the D&D Player's Handbook, those are the three pillars. You well, know. And, those,
0: um, and that was done very intentionally because that's a fantasy age staple as well. Yeah. um you got a little bit of this uh, touch of fantasy age through the the show um, but there are as you picked up on the idea of stunts right and so fantasy age has these things called stunts but stunts fall into multiple categories and it is um you know a combat stunt an exploration stunt a role-playing stunt or a magic stunt if it's a spell right um, and so I think they they do that very clearly for to support Fantasy Age, because people need to know, oh, hey, I got a stunt, what what table do I use here, right? Yeah. And yeah. this helps them figure out which table to use. Yeah, that's actually my favorite part of that
2: system. When I first saw the Dragon Age two episodes on Tabletop, I was blown away by the stunt system. Mm-hmm. And I, I now, I haven't played any of it yet, but I own quite a bit of Dragon Age stuff and Fantasy Age stuff, because I'm going to mess with that at some point.
1: There you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I think one of the other lessons uh, that's worth tossing in there is if you, you know, specifically if you've got the book and you've looked at the map, they left a lot of room for there to be stuff mm-hmm. that gets filled in later. Uh, never underestimate the, the power of just having lots of room to breathe. Mm-hmm.
3: However, they had lots of room, but the history of the campaign was two pages. It's true. So it was they weren't inundating the players or new people with pages and pages of history and backstory and lore. Well, two, so got two, what you needed
0: to. Do. Two things on that actually: the history of the game was two pages, but the description of the world actually went on for quite a bit of time. There was a lot of information about cities and, and locations that never come up anywhere in the actual story of Titans Grave. Um, so there's some decent lore in there, and I think that was intentional to be like, hey, if you want to play. Uh, a game in this area, in this world, or whatever. Here's some some things you can do to make up your own stories. Um, but but I think um, oh, what were we saying? Oh, you're talking about leaving room to breathe. I had something I was going to say. <laughs> well,
2: I very strongly agree with the room to breathe thing. Looking at mm-hmm. the map of Nestora, there's like 80 locations on it, or something like that, mm-hmm. and they they explored a tiny, tiny handful. And that's great. I love that. I love having that. I looking at the map of the whole world. I look at the names of some of the other places, and I'm already conjuring in my head what's going on there and what I would want to do with that little place.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they only des- de- describe three cities in the book, and you know, on the map, you you you. They, it doesn't take up that much space in the world. Mm-hmm. There's so much else going on out there. And some of them sound interesting just by the names of them. Uh,
3: Springing off of that, the um, sometimes all you need is a name. One of the locations in it was Dragons and Donuts. And one of, the, uh, one of the actors, one of the characters, saw that and was like, there's a place here called Dragons Unknown, and it's, we have to go there. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if you have no idea, throw out a name, maybe your players will latch on to it, and it well, you know, guides the story.
0: And and that's actually, um, we're getting into some, some advice that's actually kind of interesting to me, because um, we're actually kind of starting to walk in the direction of, Write a whole setting and have lots of lore and who knows where they'll go. But And I'm not sure that that's typically the advice that people give, right? Um, and maybe you don't need a whole setting. Maybe you just need a cool map and, and you throw some names on it and, and you figure out the rest of it later. Or you fill in some gaps and leave lots of blank space and, and what have you. I think there's value in going both directions, right? Leave Starting small and, and leaving big, white, open, empty spaces on your map to fill in later I think is fine. Um but I think you're not wrong in that giving some detail and building some of that um, is, doesn't, you know, I think that has value as well. I think as a, as a DM, um, I'm inclined, especially right now after um, experiencing Titan's Grave, um, to do a lot more of the here's a place and here's a name. And then when you ask me what it is, great, you can tell me what it is and, and incorporate some of that um, sort of gameplay into it. What I also enjoy though, you talked about how there's only about two pages of actual history of the setting. But those two pages of history actually matter for the story. Right? Because that's where the story goes. And I think that's kind of a big deal too, right? If you're going to have this big thing be part of you know, this event or whatever be part of the story that you're telling or part of the setting that you're telling your story in, then make it part of the story too. You know, if you're gonna have this great this great war in the past or this, this cataclysmic event or uh, what have you, let the players interact with that. Let them discover something important with that. Let let them take that story because that's clearly the story of the world. So make it their story too. That's how you... They, I, that's part of why I feel like this story is really, really... Feels really epic and cinematic. Chekhov's history. Yeah. Chekhov's yeah. history. <laughs> yeah.
3: What, I, what I liked about that was that the story was epic even though the characters are well, effectively low level, they'd mm-hmm. been on a handful of adventures, and yet they were still impacting the world and having historical, possibly continent-wide consequences. Mm-hmm. They didn't need to wait till they had a, a paragon tier or level ten before they actually started impacting things beyond a small little village. So sometimes you can go big. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I think that's an important thing. You monitoring scale really helps. Helps you tell the kind of story you want to tell because he couldn't have gone nearly as deep into some of the character development and things like that that he did if he had them traipsing over every corner of the map, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, having to give 15 minutes of exposition for all these new locations every time something came up. He just didn't have to do that. He had them in a little zoomed in area. You know, I can, I can, looking at this book, I can almost cover the three major cities with just my thumb. Um, that uh, that he's that he had them even near, and he really only had them running about in Nestora and a few places in the wild.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they they uh, it was mostly even like in terms of locations, they didn't do a lot of exploration or whatever, right? It was the city of Nestora, and beyond that, everything else was sort of a a montage, sort of or little vignettes or whatever, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although although the adventure itself does have a little more um travel and exploration bit like on the way to the floating castle city thing. Spoiler alert. Spoilers. 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 Sorry for spoilers. Spoiler alert. Um the the adventure actually has them crash at that point and experience a different part of the world that the 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 web series didn't do.
2: Yeah, the rust wastes. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Might have been edited for time or or content.
0: Yeah, well, and it may have. Yeah, uh, there is some. I think there was some very conscious decisions to have this adventure and very specifically cut parts of uh, parts of it out for the web series because um, they want things to have value. You know, (laughs) they want people to be able to say, "Well, why would I buy this book? I already know the story." Why would I run this event av- or why would I play through this, or run this adventure? I already know what's going to happen, um, but actually, you don't, because there are some things in there that you may not um, have seen in, this, in the web series because it didn't happen there. Right. Uh,
1: the the uh, the lore nerd in me, uh, which is to say that that portion of myself that loves to like read the cimmerillion or read all of the the campaign guides for like eberron and or forgotten realms or what have you that wants to know all the the lore uh i i was frustrated by titan's when i got it because i was like there's only three cities in here yeah <laughs> wait, wait what about the rest of... ah and you know but that's sort of the point you know you you're, you're supposed to go and You know, here are some starting points and go do some more stuff with it later, you know.
0: Well, and and it's published in a very specific way, right? This is very intentionally supposed to be connected to that web series. It's supposed to be giving you the things you need for that web series and maybe a little bit extra, but it's mostly telling the story of that web series. The the cover of it says an adventure series, right? It's not intended to be a campaign guide. It's intended to be this story – and there's more to come, you know? <laughs> it,
1: it, it's a bit like uh, the, the, the D&D adventures that have come out since 5th edition. They don't tell you all about the, 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 the Forgotten Realms. They tell you about that little section of the realms. Mm-hmm. And they tell you what you need for the adventure that they're doing. And they give you hints of how to, you know, run off with it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's very much the same sort of thing with the the newer adventures as well. So. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that,
0: that this story didn't tell. Like, we talked about how if there's going to be a big history or a big story, um, it, should be the, it should be continued with the actions of the players, right? Their story should be the story of the world. Uh, and they did a lot of that, right? There was the the war and the Prophet Dewan and, and the heroes, and all of that was bundled up and tied up together with the story that the players were going through. On the other hand there are large chunks of the story just in like the introduction to the setting that never play out at all. Like the, these, what what are they? Alien ships or whatever that planted the seeds that created Volcana and brought life to the world and all that. like, that's actually kind of a huge story, bit that was completely not touched on. Um, But I suspect because all the major story elements have come back and been important that we're going to see that come up and be important later on in future installments.
1: Yeah, I, I, one other lesson uh, that can be definitely drawn from the web series, at least. Never underestimate the power of a good cliffhanger.
0: <laughs> yeah, see, there you go. And I know you like your cliffhangers, because you used to do it all, to, all the time to us when you DM.
1: Well, that's true, I do love them. <laughs> I, I love them to death. Yeah, leave people hanging from a cliff and go, yeah, we'll pick this up next week. Yep. Yep,
0: that's, that can be powerful. All right, any other lessons? We've gone uh, 51 minutes now. Any other lessons from Titan's Grave, or, sh- or is it time to sort of wrap things up?
3: I could, th- I could talk a little bit about quests. Okay. Because like in the show, they had the personal quests, b- both short-term and long-term, where they had the goals that characters wanted to achieve on their own, like finding a brother or getting a little golden scarab beetle that's something that you know, players could easily handle to themselves is my quest is this and doing so gets them a little bit of experience or inspiration. That'd be really easy to mm. bring into your game of at letting the players dictate what, where they want their characters goals to be and then rewarding them for that.
0: Yeah. Although um, of all the different things that were going on here, that one probably stood out to me the least because that's one that I've seen a lot of other yeah. places too. You know, um,
2: We're seeing 5e do that with a lot more gusto now, too, with the, yeah, the backgrounds get... and the, the what bonds is what it's called, and the, yeah. the things like that. Mm-hmm. But that's been very helpful with my players. My players have really taken hold of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, another lesson that can be taken uh, in a world building sense is d- don't be afraid to take traditionally monster races and make them the norm um mm-hmm. i mean that the saurians are just lizard men they really are mm-hmm. uh the you know the orcs don't appear to be like the monsters of this realm they're just another intelligent race mm-hmm. and uh it worked it worked in this particular setting and i i you know if you're doing world building try and experiment with things like that
0: yeah sure i think that's a good idea
3: or, or mixing the uh, the races a bit more. So you have the the dwarf elf half new breed and the orc reptile half breed. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, Yeah, I imagine sure you could, you could kind of do that with Fifth if you just let people freely choose their sub race if they want you wanted. But I don't know. I kind of test the balance of that. Yeah. But if you're willing to go a little hand wavy
0: freeform, it would probably work. Yeah, Fantasy Age has some very specific rules for being able to do that. right? They don't give you a half elf race, but they give you rules for here's all the races. Feel free to make whatever combinations you want. Here, the here's the way to do that.
3: Yeah, you can tell you what it is. You take the dwarf race and then the high elf sub race. Bam, you're. a... I don't know what that could be called Keely. <laughs> yes, you're <a> Keely. <laughs>
0: That's right. Very good. All right. Any other uh, last thoughts or lessons that you can take from it? Hmm. Damn good. I think yep. I think go go watch this series and read the book, and I think you're going to find lots and lots of inspiration. Um, I did. Uh, I've got a whole um, post apocalyptic science fantasy campaign that I'm starting that was at least partially inspired by having having watched and read Titans Grave. So there's a lot going on there. Yeah,
1: When in
3: doubt, hire a bunch of podcasters and voice actors for your uh, your party. Uh, I think we're all
1: available. <laughs> yeah that's true uh, actually I, I think that um, uh, another thing science fantasy was big in early D&D and it mm-hmm. kind of got lost along the way people didn't sort of just concentrated on the f- fantasy but there was a lot of science fantasy in the early D&D and it's nice to see that a little re-emphasized in the setting again mm-hmm.
0: and and it's supported in 5e the DMG has uh, stats for if you want to bring in your laser guns and things all right. Well, I'm going to call that the end of the episode. I want to thank uh, Lewis Britton. Where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at Twitter at RevLewisBrenton.
2: And uh, I just launched my new website last week. There's not a lot of gaming content on it, but there will be soon. LewisBrinton.com.
0: There you go. And Jeremiah McCoy.
1: Uh, I'm at com or the basics of the I also have a YouTube show called The Basics of the Game, so I'm around. He, he is around. And David
0: Gibson,
3: I'm at dndjester Jester on Twitter, and you read my blog webcomic, Five Minute Workday, at mwdcom
0: There you go. And I want to thank all of you out there listening to the show and supporting us by shopping at our affiliates at Amazon and D&D Classics. We really appreciate that. Also, I want everyone with a Twitter account to head on over to Twitter when they hear this. And I want you to tell Tracy that you missed her on the episode. Her Twitter handle is at Sarah Dark Magic. That's Sarah with an H. Dark Magic. So everybody go out there and tweet at Sarah Dark Magic and tell her that you missed her on the show. You can reach out to us at the, on thetomeshow at gmail.com, thetomeshow at gmail.com, or call us up on the bizline 919-BIZ-TOME, B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And that is episode 257, where we spilled our blood to open the way and met the Prophet Dewan in this episode of The
3: Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome,
2: I'm on the wall.